Uh, John did not speak out of turn in terms of what we have bitten off today. Now, um, I'll talk a bit more about that later. We, uh, I don't know about you, I, I kind of have my, my weekly trip to Bunnings. I don't know if that's a regular a thing. I, I always find that I head into Bunnings and I naturally gravitate toward the neon green section of uh, what's classically kind of known as Ryobi 18 kind of plus range. Now, now I was around when the, this kind of stuff was first developed and it was a, a concept that you could buy these skins, essentially these tools, and all you had to do was say, take the same battery and just kind of plug it into it and you could use all these tools with the one set of batteries, okay? And, um, and there's all these different brands that knew it nowadays, but I always remember that bright green Ryobi brand. And whenever I walk into Bunnings, uh, whether it be in the kind of official tool section or on the clearance shelf, I still see that bright green neon and I'm always gravitated to discover what they will plug a battery into next. You see, because it started with drills and, and small circular saws and like we all get that. But honestly, at this point, when I go to that kind of tool section, I'm almost expecting to pick up maybe like a toothbrush that you can plug like an 18-volt battery into because they've just taken this concept and they've just literally applied it, I think, to everything that they can think of. Um, and I was, uh, I was at Bunnings the other day and I wandered in, I saw something and I asked the question, what is that? Like I got to the point of not even knowing what it was. I saw this one and I, and I asked the question, so what do you do with that? Remove earwax, good suggestion from Mike. I was like, is this a heavy duty cork opener that apparently requires 18 volts in order to get into that bottle of wine? I wasn't quite sure what was going on, uh, but it was really nice that I didn't have to go in there and say, oh, I need to come up with a reason not to buy this because I literally didn't know what it would do. Now, for those of you who are playing along at home, this apparently is called a drain auger. Apparently, you stick it down a drain and clear the drains. But this is, this is what happens, right? Sometimes we're just like, what is this? You pick up a tool and go, what do I do with this? And, um, and sometimes at church, we have a series, and we've done these series over various years, where we purely look at what we have and ask the question, what do I do with this? <laughs> Right? And we've done this through minor prophets uh, in the PM service, and we've done this through various books of the Bible in the AM services as uh, well. And, uh, and when it comes to some of these major prophets, what are known as major prophets in the Old Testament, sometimes we look at something that has 66 chapters, and we ask the question, what do I do with this? It's just like, you know, if you, if you look at your Bible, if you've still got a physical Bible and you, and you look at the edges and the patina, that is kind of the, the residue that, that, that emerges once you've used something over time. And of course, in the New Testament, there's all those fingerprints and there's that little bit of whatever's coming off your fingers. But then when it comes to some of these prophets, it looks starkly new. You know, it's just like you've just purchased it from Kurong. And you're going, I just don't know what to do with that. And yet, there are not only 66 chapters in Isaiah, big bite today, right? But over the next couple of weeks, we're also going to be looking at Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And we're going to be looking at an overview. So if you're wanting detail, detail, it's just not possible. I tried this week. It is not possible, right? But we are doing some overview so we can ask the question, what do I, sorry, answer the question, what do I do with this? Because these three major prophets over these next three weeks constitute 160 chapters of the Bible. 
160 chapters, right? And just for perspective, that's the equivalent of all the New Testament Gospels, Acts, Romans, and one and second and first and second Corinthians combined, right? So this is a large chunk of the Bible in the Old Testament that should not just sit there going, what do I do with this? So today we look at Isaiah, we look at the 66 chapters in Isaiah, and this is huge. And in hindsight, way too much. But we're going to give it a go, and I want to make this as engaging as possible. This isn't just going to be a, hey, here's some information about the Bible. I want to make this like pastoral. I want this to land. I want this to speak. I want it to challenge us. But in order to do that, first we need to talk about cereal. Didn't see that coming, did you? You see, I have a deep appreciation of inventiveness, you know, the ability to create something genuinely new. And nowadays, I feel like this can be so rare. I mean, nowadays, we're all about remaking movies, uh, reselling hit toys of the 90s, and skateboarding being cool on a 10-year rotation. Like, we all know that these kind of factors are happening. But in this time, and over this time, we realizing we realized that maybe the original movie wasn't so great, and that Furby's the, the little creature never stopped talking, and the incredible pain of hitting concrete when the skateboard slides out from underneath us, right? So we have this propensity to forget while we also have this inclination to recreate, but not genuinely make something new. I feel like the epitome of this for me, in my opinion, was the cereal brand Shreddies. Uh, who in 2008 sought to remake their product, not with a new recipe or flavour, but by turning their product 45 degrees. <laughs> the product website uh, explains the history of Diamond Shreddies. Recent advances in cereal technology have allowed us to take Shreddies cereal to a whole new level of geometric superiority. One taste and you'll wonder how you've been so square for so long. This is not a joke, this is real, okay? Like this actually happened, okay? Canada, you can see the, the little bit of French in there as well. But here's the problem. It's still a shreddy, okay? It's still a shreddy. Nothing has actually changed. There hasn't been any progress. Now why do I talk about cereal, right? Because when it comes to the book of Isaiah, there's always a risk that if we don't look backward to what has already taken place, we end up repeating a painful history, right? We don't actually go anywhere. If we don't look back, there's always this risk of repeating something that has happened over and over again. And that's why prophetic books in the Old Testament are so important, like Isaiah. If you are wanting to make the, the story of your people's history look good, you would not include books like Isaiah in it, right? Like, this is not the highlights reel of the nation of Israel. This is something that they place in there so that they can carry a story, a story that is filled with pain and is filled with mistakes and filled with missed opportunities. But there was this refining process that God would ultimately use to draw the people back to their original calling. That's what this was about. And there was all these hope pieces along the way, don't get me wrong. But Isaiah is just filled with mistakes and history that want to cry and say, don't follow this path again. God won't waste it, but this is not what he intended. And so for us, it also includes hope today. Because you may find yourself in some of these same stories. 
And so this book of Isaiah, and we're going to go through it, is needed. It's real, it's raw, it has a lot to teach us, and it isn't just about what happened back then. It's actually an invitation to find these stories in our own faith and life experience and maybe, just maybe, choose a different trajectory. And that's what we're going to try and do today. So here's the bit of a structure of the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters. First 12 chapters kind of present a choice for Jerusalem. We'll talk about the state that they are in at the time, but God presents them with a choice. You can go this way or you can go that way. In chapters 13 to 27, suddenly there's all this judgment against the nations. God's saying, hey, the way that the nations are operating is not okay, and so things will not remain as they are. In chapters 28 to 39, these all have little blurry edges, by the way, these chapter breaks. The fall of Jerusalem is predicted. That is the the center of, of religious Israel's life was going to fall underneath Babylon which is then when exile occurs. And then after exile in chapters 40 to 66, we have these incredible 26 chapters of hope and possibility. So you can almost see here, just that kind of face value, it's almost got all the elements needed in a great story, okay? It's got choice, it's got consequence, it's got hope, it's got possibility, right? But it's delivered in this poetic, often confronting imagery that is designed to provoke and to challenge people where they are at. For example, here in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, see how the faithful city, that is, Jerusalem represented the, the calling and the spirituality of the Israelite people or the, of the nation of Israel. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. All right, so this is not kind of like, oh, nice, soft, kind of like, hey, I'll just ease you into this. This is like confronting. It's designed to provoke and spur and cause people to think differently. I mean, you look at these and you, I don't know if, I don't know if you can avoid it. I can't avoid it. I'm kind of like, gosh, what's the state of my being right now? <laughs> you know, what was I versus what am I right now? Like, it's supposed to be this way. And so we're going to pull a few threads here. Um, Because there are seasons of faith that we each experience and find ourselves in. And again, this isn't just about what happened, even though it did. It's about what happens. And if we don't look back at some of these stories and these lessons, we risk treading painful and well-worn paths if we don't take the time to look back. And then we look back and go, oh, how did I do that again? So I want to start with that first section, the choice. There's going to be a fair bit of text today. So uh, you'll get your, your Bible study in. This is what it says in Isaiah 1, 18 to 20. Come now, this is God speaking, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, in this first section of Isaiah, as you read through it, which you know I no doubt you're going to over this next seven days, it flips back and forward between these two possibilities: the possibility of chaos and destruction, and the possibility of hope and restoration and good things. And we see God actually setting up a choice, and each of these choices carries a trajectory. 
He's essentially saying to the people, if you continue in your greed, if you continue in your self-dependence, if you do this, the consequences will be severe, right? And you can imagine, like, again, sometimes we depict Old Testament God as full-on wrathful, but you can also imagine, especially if you're a parent or you're a carer of some kids, the loving father saying, if you head down this path, this is where it's going to go. If you head down this path, this is where it's going to go, and I can't make that decision for you, right? But I can tell you with my perspective where it is going to go, and this is what we see here in the early chapters of Isaiah. It's confronting but it comes from this deep love of his people and wanting them to become the people that they were called to be, to represent him in the world and to extend God's blessing to all nations. He points out some really specifics. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Oh, like any of these, like, gosh, you could just take this and apply it to yourself and you're like, Am I, like, placing my trust in mere humans? Like, they just got a breath, and yet I am the breath, the pneuma, the spirit. Like, whoa, like, this stuff punches, right? But either way, in these early chapters, God is, you cannot stay where you are right now. You're not living up to the calling to be a blessing or a priesthood to all nations, and regardless of the path that you take, which actually is in these later chapters of Isaiah, God knew would be a poor one, the choice they made, this work will be a refining one. Because that's what God does. He refines us. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, and then 4 to 6, in that day, that is the process after refinement, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Verse 4, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will, that's not specifically against women, by the way. That's just a poetic reference. I just want to make that clear. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over all those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. Now, if, if you note some of the imagery in here, um, the, the cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flaming fire by night, uh, if you know the Exodus story, you can hear the parallels there. What was the Exodus story but the people uh, coming out of captivity in Egypt and being given a, a name and an identity? Again, they've been given the law in order that they might be blessed to be a blessing. And God is saying, my agenda, my priority, my desire for you as a people has not changed but there's going to be some refining work to be done. For after all, this people, the people that I believe that you and I are called to be as priesthood of believers, as Christians today, it will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. What would it look like, church, if we knew that our role as a body of people was to be a shelter and a refuge? Is that what it feels like when you enter a church? Is that what it feels like when somebody has a conversation with you as a follower of Jesus in your workplace? Do they feel like you are a shelter and a refuge? Because if they do, you are tapping into God's intention for his future. 
And so we could ask this lesson of choice or ask this question. Because for some people here, God is confronting our trajectory and actually presenting us with a choice. And the question is, will we choose to listen or will we choose to double down? Are we going to actually listen and say, yes, I will follow your leading God, or are we going to double down in our own strength, listening to the breath that is in the the heart of man? God does give us these choices, and that's what we see in these first 12 chapters of Isaiah. Like I said, big overview here. The next section is about judgment. And we see this judgment against the nations. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaiah 13. 25, I will crush the Assyrians, the Assyrians in, my hand, sorry, in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. These are just a little, little piece of what we see over these next immense chapters. We have prophecy against the Philistines and against Moab and against Cush and against Damascus. Prophecies against Egypt and Arabia and Edom, Right? And so over and over again, there are these kind of prophetic judgments against these nations who have not aligned with God and his will, who are also causing murder and destruction and hostility. And God's saying it cannot be. Now, you can imagine for a moment, if you were hearing these kind of prophetic words against those people, you might be tempted in that moment to kind of feel good that God was casting judgment against those nations, right? You know, it's almost like the star player has chosen your team in a sporting competition. It's like they've chosen your team and now we are going to trample everybody else. But then comes chapter 22, a prophecy against Jerusalem. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die. And there the chariots you were so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office and you will be ousted from your position. I love the various imagery he uses there. One which is like you who were so proud of your chariots. Like you thought that you with your strength of your military might were going to like withstand this. Come on. And that that depose language, you know, is, is, a, is a significant language. It might even resonate with us a little bit more than the chariots thing. It's just like you're being deposed from your position, that position of authority and power that you have. It's not going to last. You will be ousted from your position, you mighty man. There's something about this, that, again, that is designed to provoke Because suddenly, for Israel, they realize that the star player that they thought was on their team isn't actually a star player. Instead, it is a perfect umpire, preserving the integrity of the game, to use that metaphor, right? I thought that my God was against all those people, but actually, he's actually for all those people. He just knows they can't stay where they are, and he can't stay where we are either. How easy can we fall into this same type of trap as Christians? I'm just saying it because I know that I'm tempted to as well. Those people, judge those people. Cast prophecy against those people. And yet we fail to look at our own shortcomings. And again, I say this, why? 
Not because necessarily I'm like, oh, church, we're in this dire situation. We need to reconfigure ourselves. But because if we don't look back again, we risk retreading these stories and suffering the pain that they experience too. Because for some of us, there might be a lesson in this judgment section where God is challenging either our victim mentality, it's like, oh, everyone's against me, or a superiority complex. God's for me and not for everyone else. And the question becomes in these chapters, will we test for our own shortcomings? Will we take the speck out of our, our eye before we seek to take the plank out of somebody else's? Jesus might challenge us with. Again, a massive lesson that if we don't acknowledge sits there profoundly, provocatively there in the Old Testament in those pages that we never wander through, we might just miss. In Isaiah 28 to 39, we have the fall, this next section. This passage in Isaiah 31 I feel like embodies a lot of these chapters. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses. I just want to stop there for a second. Just remember the story of Israel for a second. Where were they liberated from? Egypt, right? Who were the ones who had put them in captivity and slavery, denied their humanity for uh, hundreds, 400 years? Egypt, right? Now they're going there for help. They will be coming like Egypt, this empire. Sorry, that was a side issue. Who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Again, verse 3, but the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. Yeah, a bit of a downer. Don't get me wrong, right? It's a bit of a downer. But this is what's in there, right? It's not in there for no purpose. It's there to remind us. Because right here in these chapters, there is this kind of tipping point where the powerful and ruthless nation of Babylon was on Jerusalem's doorstep. And instead of the nation choosing to return to God, and experiencing that trajectory, they, instead they doubled down. And what we see in these chapters is an attempt to leverage politics. That's, what, that's what's happening here. They're leveraging politics. They're relying upon their neighbours, these neighbouring nations. And for a while, King Hezekiah, it's funny, Hezekiah's in there. Sometimes people talk about the book of Hezekiah, it doesn't exist. But is there in, there's there in Isaiah, the King Hezekiah at the time, there was this momentary time, just in a couple of chapters, where he, he almost had the right idea. But then he flipped again and started drawing from his own strength, trying to utilise places like Egypt that were ultimately hollow. In fact, Hezekiah would culminate this fall in this moment in Isaiah 39. It says, Hezekiah, that is King Hezekiah, received the envoys from Babylon gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show Babylon. 
So Hezekiah, while the Babylon was at his doorstep, was like, I want to I curry favour. I want to show you that we're good guys. I want to show you that we deserve being here. And he thought that through his own kind of political means, he could curry favour with the Babylonians. And in just after this, Isaiah says, what did you do? And he said, I showed them everything. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, it will not last. They will take it all. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. See, there's this tipping point sometimes. Well, maybe we've gone beyond the point of no return, and yet still we have these hard hearts, and still we try to leverage just this little bit of authority and influence that we have, and what we just need to do is just accept that God is a God. For some people here, God is challenging us not to draw from our own strengths in times of desperation, because that's what it was. It was this tipping point. This time of desperation, and in that desperation, do I draw from my minimal reserves? Or do I chat and draw from the God who is for me and who loves me? Have we relegated the true power of God to the margins? And and I, I think this is a challenge for all of us in our faith, and particularly when we're confronting really difficult situations, again, in our workplace, in our town, how easy is it to try and draw from our own human power and relegate the true power of God to the margins? You know, how often do we bring our issues to God in prayer first rather than trying 10 attempts and then being like, all right, now I'll go to God. And I don't say this, like I, I put myself under the same microscope, right? It's, it's just our human inclination and yet there it is sitting in these chapters of Isaiah reminding us, If you go down this path, you're going to repeat the same mistakes. Let's not relegate the power of God to the margins. And finally, one more lesson. I realise this is a different sermon, by the way, right? This is how we go on about it. This is a big chunk of scripture. But it's in that hope. Those chapters 40 to 66. Now, only, only after chapters and chapters of choice, of judgment, of desperation and rejection, with little sprinklings of restoration and hope all the way through, by the way. It's not all downer, okay? You'll get through to this point. We finally get to the chapters that we as Christians love. These are the chapters, if there's going to be any fingerprints, these are the ones that are on them. Because it is chapters around hope. This is words after the people had been uh, thrown into exile under the Babylonians, right? If you want to learn about what that looked like, read the, read the book of Daniel, right? This is the same time period, okay? Oops. And it says here in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And if those, that verse 3 sounds familiar, it ought to, particularly for us as Christians. But this was a declaration made by John the Baptist. Right? He was the one declared to be the voice calling in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. He was this prophetic embodiment of this declaration and promise. And you kind of need this story built a little bit. I mean, think about 
a majority of the movies that we see, you know. If you're a Star Wars fan, let's be honest, Return of the Jedi would not have been anywhere near as impressive had the Empire not struck back first, right? That's how it works, right? There, there's this sense in which it's like out of the ashes, out of the desperation comes this hope that was referred all the way back, if you recall, in the early chapters of Isaiah, right? God was not taken by surprise. This was a necessary refining work that he did. And so we see this beauty emerge. We're presented with a different kind of kingdom to the one that looked like Egypt and had aligned with Egypt or looked like Babylon and had aligned with Babylon. This is a different kind of kingdom shaped by a servant-hearted king, which is, of course, incarnated by Jesus. Isaiah 53, 4-5, again, familiar words for us Christians. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. And so this covenant actually was, ex- uh, was, was extended once again to this nation of Israel. And instead of what they had become, which was simply untenable, God was inviting them to become the very nation that he originally called them to be. He said to Abram, or Abraham who would become, I will bless you that you might be a blessing to all nations. It was always about the bigger picture. It says in Isaiah 56, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. This isn't just about the nation of Israel. It's about the promise that God had given them, the purpose and the calling that God had given them, not just for them, but for the entire world. They had strayed from that path. And so refining work needed to be done. And our God who loves us does choose to refine us. But now here in the book of Isaiah was a time of restoration. Now, I can't do justice to these 26 chapters in a sermon, right? Except to say that for some people here, you have or are experiencing immense pain and maybe trauma. And maybe you feel a little bit like exiles in a foreign land like Israel did at that time, where they'd lost everything. They'd gone from this heightened empire of control to literally nothing, and that fall breaks us as it broke them. But if you're feeling that way, I want to remind you today of this final lesson of hope. That God never wastes anything and he never gives up on you. And this thread runs all the way through the book of Isaiah. We've got confronting language and woes and stuff that's really hard to stomach, but all the way through, God's agenda, his prerogative is to be for his people, that they might reclaim that original calling to be a blessing to all nations. The same calling that we, as followers of Jesus, 
as Christ's body are also called to be and do. God's agenda for his restoration and reconciliation of all things hasn't changed. People change, circumstances change, but his desire and heart does not. We are part of this same story. So we started by asking the question, I've got 66 chapters of Isaiah here. Maybe I've never read it. What do I do with this? Perhaps the better question than what do I do with this is what work does it need to do in me? So rather than like what do I do with this, what work does this story actually need to do in me? What do these chapters and these themes need to provoke in me as I consider what my role and as a church what we consider to be our role in living out the calling that God has placed in us? Today, I've literally skimmed the surface of this incredible book. And I want to tell you, this week I did read all 66 chapters. It was full on, right? To try and find these pieces that I hope would just prompt and highlight these themes. And I encourage you to commit to reading it too. But commit to reading it in light of the themes that run through it. Because we've got to ask ourselves the question, what chapter are we in? Are we in a chapter of choice where God is presenting us with possibilities and asking us which way are we going to go? Are we going to choose to double down or are we going to choose to repent? Maybe we feel like we're in a, a season or a chapter of judgment and we're struggling with a victim mentality or a superiority complex and where it feels like everyone else is against us and God wants to remind us that we need to be aware of our own shortcomings too. Are we in a time of desperation or fall where we're clinging to the last remnants of energy that we have rather than returning to the God who accidentally perhaps we've placed on the margins? Or maybe, just maybe, you are in a season that requires hope because you're experiencing pain and trauma and you need to be reminded that God never wastes anything and he never gives up on you, just as he did for the nation of Israel. What chapter are you in? What storyline do you need to remember? Because if we don't look backward, we risk repeating a painful history. I'm going to pray in a moment. But just before I do, we're just going to have a couple of, well, actually, it's going to be a minute because a minute feels like a long time in silence. We're going to have a minute to consider, hey, am I sitting in one of these seasons? And if you can identify a particular season that you're sitting in, note down the chapters there and allow God to do a work through it in you maybe this week. Let's take a minute now.
God, as we consider what word resonates with us, may we, may we not push you to the margins. Would we take up the choice that you're presenting us with today and seek your word and your spirit to guide us through this season. Lord, thank you that we can learn from the stories that have come before. That we can be reminded that even through difficult times, you are faithful, speaking, guiding, refining. You don't let our failures get in the way of your mission. Your, your kingdom will come with us and maybe sometimes in spite of us, but as your people welcomed into this mission, would we be faithful? In your name, amen.